and welcome to another episode of the Bank Care Clinic podcast. My name is Alicia Schertz, and I'll be your host for this episode. According to statistics, more than 15 million Americans experience symptoms of acid reflux each day, and some studies suggest that those numbers might actually be even higher. But what is acid reflux, and when does it become a more serious issue? I'm joined today by Dr. Daniel T. McKenna, general surgeon at Aurora Bay Care Medical Center, to discuss acid reflux, GERD, and possible treatment options for this condition. Dr. McKenna, thank you so much for joining us today. Alicia, it's my pleasure to be here. Can we start by just defining acid reflux? What is it exactly, and and maybe what symptoms are people experiencing if they're suffering from this? Sure. The simplest way to think about acid reflux is that normally our stomach makes acid to help digest food. And in the case of acid reflux, it's acid from the stomach getting up into the esophagus and causing burning within the esophagus. People usually suffer from symptoms such as burning in the chest, uh, difficulty with swallowing, regurgitation where fluid or food will come up in their mouth, but they can also have some atypical symptoms like coughing, throat clearing, hoarseness, voice changes as well. Yeah, and so some, I mean, most of us have probably experienced some of this or some of these symptoms in our lives. How common is this for people? Well, most people will suffer some symptoms of it at some point during their life, especially with women during pregnancy or if someone has consumed too much fatty meals or too much alcohol, they may experience a little bit of symptoms periodically. But it's around 20% of people that probably experience it on a daily or weekly basis, and then they often need medications to help with their symptoms. Yeah, and so that gets into when it becomes maybe a more serious issue. Can you talk a little bit about that and and what symptoms might be present or, or when people think it might be more than just something they ate? Sure. So if symptoms are happening every day, if it's keeping them up at night, if it's limiting what they can do from a diet or exercise standpoint, that's when it becomes a bigger issue. In general, acid reflux is a quality of life issue more than a serious medical problem that may threaten their life, but it makes a huge impact on their quality of life. They really have looked at this in quality of life surveys and found that people with acid reflux that's poorly controlled have less quality life than people with heart failure, diabetes, um, and even uh, kidney issues. Yeah, so there's a lot of people out there who might be just suffering through it as if they as if they need to, right? Right. They just think that's just the way it is as you get older, and, and they, they deal with it by taking either some Tums or over-the-counter proton pump inhibitors. But it's not necessarily something that they have to suffer with. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about... Um, maybe some of those treatment options, people taking over-the-counter things. There are some foods, you said, that, that might exacerbate the issue. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So whenever somebody has acid reflux, I think the first thing that needs to probably be addressed is looking at what the triggers are and trying to limit their lifestyle choices in such a way to limit those triggers. There are certain foods that sit in the stomach longer, usually fattier meals sit in the stomach for a longer period of time than than other other kind of food. In those cases, that food sitting in the stomach means that the body is making more acid and they're more likely to, to get acid reflux. So it can be helpful to limit fatty foods. Certainly people that have really bad acid reflux know that you don't want to eat late at night as when you lay uh, on your back, obviously that can cause a lot of acid reflux to occur. And then we look at it, you know, things that they can control as well are, are just their weight and 
their um, uh, size of their meals. Because when you really look at what acid reflux is, it's there's a a weakened sphincter at the bottom of the esophagus. There's a, essentially a valve there that has become a little weaker in time, or, or there's too much pressure coming up from below. So what we really want to do is try to limit how much pressure is building up in the stomach, how long food is sitting in the stomach. And I think most people realize that the food they they eat may cause symptoms. So things like caffeine, alcohol, tomato-based products um, can weaken the lower esophageal sphincter just temporarily. They cause a little bit of relaxation of it. And that's why symptoms can often become worse after those kinds of meals. Yeah, interesting. And, and and I know you're using acid reflux as the, um, you know, what we're talking about today, but a lot of people hear the word GERD uh, or the acronym GERD. Can you explain maybe the difference between GERD and maybe what somebody would consider acid reflux or heartburn? Sure. I mean, it's certainly people will only know what symptoms they have and, and what they can attribute to acid reflux. But GERD is a chronic condition. It's something that bothers people on a daily or weekly basis, and it has a constellation of symptoms. Many of those symptoms I've already mentioned, but it's it's normally that people will have heartburn, burning in the upper abdomen, lower chest, difficulties with getting food down. They may notice that if they bend over to tie their shoes or pick something up, that fluid or food come up into their, their mouth. Um, but the, the symptoms that are a little bit atypical, a little bit different than what people usually anticipate is that they can have a lot of strange things like throat clearing, hoarseness, voice changes, coughing. And obviously there's a lot of things that can cause that as well, but it is very common that acid reflux will tickle the back of the throat and cause a lot of those different symptoms. I want to talk about some of the treatment options available because we've already discussed that you know people can try Tums and, and limiting their diet and exercise, but but even with all of those measures, sometimes occasionally other treatment options are necessary. Can you talk about um, other treatment options that you can provide? Sure. So obviously, when people have unrelenting acid reflux, a lot of times they may end up needing more investigation before even treatment is discussed. So a lot of patients will end up needing an upper endoscopy, which is essentially like having a colonoscopy, but without the prep, and it's just going down the mouth and looking at the stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just to make sure that there's not something else going on, like an ulcer or precancerous changes or a narrowing in the esophagus. But the treatment options that are most commonly used at the beginning are to prescribe uh, proton pump inhibitors. And those are things like pantoprazole, omeprazole, and those can be taken in escalating doses up to twice a day. If those aren't working, they'll sometimes add in some uh, histamine blockers to try to help as well. But if if everything else fails, then that's usually when we talk about surgery. Yeah, and let's and let's talk about that because I'm, I know that there's some innovative surgeries available now that that you guys have been doing for patients. Can you talk about? Um, I think it's called the Lynx Reflux Management System. Sure. So really the history of surgical management of reflux goes back to the 1950s. And we've seen such an increase in the amount of people having acid reflux due to some of our food choices, carbonation, our our weight, that the number of surgeries done for acid reflux has really increased compared to the 1950s. So over the course of of time, we figured out that the best way to 
manage acid reflux from a surgery standpoint is to try to augment that lower sphincter, that, that esophageal sphincter that has become a little bit loose, a little bit lax. Historically, we have wrapped the stomach around the esophagus, something called a fundal plication. That does really well as far as managing acid reflux. But patients sometimes would have a little bit more difficulty with bloating. They sometimes would have some difficulties with being able to vomit. And over the last 15 years, there's been the development of something called links, which this is essentially magnetic beads that are linked together. And using using minimally invasive surgery, we go in and we measure the size of the esophagus. And we wrap the beads around the esophagus. And what's interesting about these beads is that the attraction between each of the individual beads breaks at a pressure of 35 millimeters of mercury. So when people swallow, it kind of relaxes a little bit, just like our our lower sphincter would do. But then there's that extra resistance there so that when someone's going to have a little bit of relaxation of that sphincter because the stomach's gotten full or they've uh, drank too much soda or beer, there's that little bit of extra pressure there to prevent anything from being able to come back up. So it does really well from a management of of acid reflux standpoint, but if so much pressure built up below that they needed to belch uh, or they needed to vomit, they're better able to do that with this system than with the uh, fundal application. Interesting. And, and talk about that procedure just from a patient standpoint. What is, is it inpatient, outpatient? So it's an outpatient procedure. And for the most part, we put people back on a regular food right away afterwards. The only thing that they really need to do from a diet standpoint that might be a little different is that we usually ask people to do some snacks in between meals, just having a few bites of yogurt or cottage cheese or something to kind of keep using the esophagus so that it doesn't become fatigued when you go to eat a regular meal. Mm-hmm. They are usually off for uh, seven to 10 days after surgery and then can resume activity uh, as tolerated. In some of the patients, they might have a little bit larger hiatal hernia that needs to be fixed. And in those cases, we may ask them not to do any really heavy lifting over 20 pounds for six weeks. But the pain is certainly not not very large. I mean, with these little incisions, most people need pain medicine for two to three days, and then they're back to feeling like themselves. And you had talked about it a little bit, just the prevalence of surgery um, today versus, you know, a decade ago or so, but how common is surgery and should someone be concerned that if they are having symptoms of acid reflux or GERD, that, that surgery will be necessary for them? Well, it's, it's really interesting when you look at the history of uh, the surgical management of reflux that in the 1990s, there was a um, huge explosion of the number of these cases being done, and it was because of the advent of laparoscopy. Mm-hmm. So once there was the ability to use minimally invasive surgery to do um, uh, or to address the acid reflux, many more patients came in seeking that. There was sort of a downturn because some of the outcomes were not as good, mostly because surgeons that didn't have any specialty training were doing this and, and had some adverse outcomes. But we've seen that the the number of surgeries been done in the last 15 years has stayed relatively steady with a slight increase. Um, the number of people who need surgery every year um, within our facility probably averages around 100 to 150, but there are certainly um, around the country some places that do a great deal amount of surgery and others that do very little. Yeah, and that's interesting. And you had talked about maybe just some of the causes of, of the increase in 
not just the number of surgery, but the people suffering from from that. Can you elaborate a little bit more on on maybe the increase that you've seen? And, and sure. So I mean, I think that the the increase in people seeking surgery has been somewhat just related to people having links or fundiplications where they um, they go out and they talk about how now I can eat what I want to eat again, and I don't take any medication. And word of mouth often is the best way to, uh, to for patients to realize that this is something that they would be interested in, especially if they've been suffering with this for, for years. Yeah, and I want to go back to that quality of life issue. If, if I am someone who is listening and I'm experiencing these issues or I have been experiencing these issues for years at a time, what is their course of action? What do you recommend? Well, I think it's always best to talk to your primary care physician and make sure that you you have any symptoms addressed by them as well. Um, certainly, I'm always happy to see people um, as the first step as well. I just want people to understand that often if they've been suffering for a while, we may have to do some investigation mm-hmm. because certainly we don't want to just proceed with surgery and not address their, their problem. We want to make sure that what we're doing is actually going to be effective. So what often people end up needing is some testing. Um, the way that we do testing is often that they have to do that upper endoscopy that I mentioned earlier. They often may need some pH testing where we test how bad the acid reflux is in the esophagus. And then we always want to make sure that the esophagus is strong enough to tolerate surgery. And that's something called manometry. We try to do those tests all closely together and then I go over the results with them. But just having the test doesn't mean that somebody needs to have surgery. Sometimes it's even just reassuring to know that you are you do have acid reflux, how bad it is. And maybe there's something that could be done differently from a medical standpoint to optimize their their care. Mm-hmm. And would you typically start with some of those PPIs or things first before surgery and try to correct it that way, or how does that work? Yeah, so for the most part, um, we we almost always want to try to use a proton pump inhibitor um, before we we put somebody through surgery. And really, you know, the proton pump inhibitors can be very effective for a long period of time, maybe mm-hmm. get people through the rest of their life. But there are a lot of people who end up getting breakthrough symptoms as time goes on, and that's where um, the gastroenterologists often send patients for surgery. Very interesting. I, I think this is very helpful information. Is there anything else that you want to add just for, for patients who might be listening? Um, no, I mean, I think that it, this is something that I'm sure is more of a, a nuisance to a lot of patients, but it is interesting that there are a lot of people who come in who've had such bad symptoms for years that they've made adjustments that they don't even recognize that they've done, such as sleeping with the head of the bed elevated, not eating after five o'clock. And they choose their foods based on what will not keep them up at night. Mm -hmm. So I think that people that are suffering with this, whether it's in silence or whether they're telling everybody else about it, it's worth getting it investigated just to make sure that there's not something more serious going on, but also to to know that there is a way to eliminate this and, and to get people living a better quality of life. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McKenna. We appreciate you sharing this information. It's my pleasure. This was this was, uh, excellent. Again, Dr. Daniel T. McKenna is a surgeon at Aurora Bay Care Medical Center. He currently sees patients in Green Bay, Marinette, and Kakana. If you want to learn more about Bay Care Clinic or request an appointment, visit baycare.net. Thank you and have a great day.